Nine out of ten hiring managers are having difficulty hiring today. Robert Half is here to help. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. Well, there's a, a brand of cheese that I like to buy, and it used to be like 4 or $5, and now it's 7 something. So I have to be real careful. <laughs> Welcome to The Best New Ideas in Money, a podcast from MarketWatch. I'm Stephanie Kelton. I'm an economist and a professor of economics and public policy at Stony Brook University. And I'm Jeremy Olshan, the editor of MarketWatch. Each week, we explore innovations in economics, finance, technology, and policy that rethink the way we live, work, spend, save, and invest. Today, we're going to talk about inflation. Well, right now, everyone is talking about inflation. The producer price index for August up more than 8% from the previous year, its highest reading in at least a decade. Supply and demand, that's what's driving inflation on everything from gas to produce. Now the shelves are just so bare in so many places. And it's not only just like at Kroger, but it's at Walmart. Prices are outrageous. We don't drive no more than we have to and, you know, use maybe one vehicle more and leave the other one parked in the driveway so it stays full of gas. (laughs) Prices have been going a little crazy. Gas prices are up. Inflation is pushing pump prices, too. AAA says drivers are paying some of the highest rates since 2014. It's so hard to spend 65 bucks just for gas. Same with food. Every time I go to the grocery store, it is just more and more expensive. It just hurts. Furniture and some electronics. I have been curious why it seems not just groceries, but everything has gone up. People have been selling used cars for more than they paid for them new. Until recently, we didn't hear much about inflation. Here in the U.S., in Japan, and across much of Europe, inflation has been running low. In fact, too low for more than a decade. Policymakers were actually trying to move inflation higher, but they didn't have much luck until the pandemic arrived. Now, for the first time in decades, everyone is starting to think about why it's happening, how long it will last, and how to bring inflation back down. On one hand, that probably seems a little unsettling, but maybe it's also kind of reassuring because for the first time in a long time, economists are starting to rethink their own models and theories of inflation. Basically, they're starting to admit that they might not understand inflation as well as they thought they did. Inflation is complicated, so complicated even the experts struggle to know what to make of it. Luckily for us, we didn't have to look too far to find the right experts to talk to. I happen to be talking to a macroeconomist right now. So Stephanie, let's start by explaining what inflation is. So basically, it starts costing more and more money to pay the electric bill, go to the grocery store, buy a car, pay the rent, order a pizza, and on and on and on. That's inflation. It just means that the prices you're used to paying for the things you're most used to buying keep going up. We do not at present have a theory of inflation dynamics that works sufficiently well to be of use for the business of real-time monetary policymaking. That's Daniel Tarullo. He served as a member of the Federal Reserve Board and the Federal Open Market Committee from 2009 to 2017. Many, although by no means all, good monetary policymakers, even really good ones, are maybe a little bit more attached to some of the concepts and theories that are not 
as airtight or as not as useful as they might once have been. Managing inflation was Tarullo's job. The Fed, just to back up a little bit, sets interest rates with the goal of keeping our economy at a healthy rate of growth. They sort of control the thermostat. When things are cold, they try to heat up our economy by lowering rates. And when the economy is overheating, they try to do the opposite, raise rates to cool things off by making it more expensive to borrow money. This is basically what happens every time I visit my parents. They have one long argument about how best to set the thermostat. Tarullo is saying quite candidly that the Federal Reserve doesn't have a reliable model of inflation. He's also criticizing economists for being too attached to theories that we can't prove are right. Here we have someone who worked in the institution whose job it is to manage inflation at a very senior level, saying we don't really understand how inflation works. To really get at this, I think we need a bit of a history lesson. The last time we as a country talked seriously about inflation was in the 1970s. I've been here since 4.30 this morning. It's ridiculous waiting online here. I couldn't get gas uh, Tuesday. The line was about eight blocks long. Waiting online for over an hour and a half, and to be the last one, you've got no gas. I think it's disgusting. We talk about inflation a lot, but for most people alive right now, they've never lived in a period of high inflation. I only vaguely remember being like five years old in the 70s waiting on those gas lines. Yeah, I have that memory as well. I think everybody had to take turns based on your license plate or something along those lines. So what happened in the 70s that drove gas prices so high? Well, the big thing that happened was that the major Middle Eastern oil producing countries created a fuel shortage by cutting off the supply of oil to the United States. That sent energy prices soaring and alongside much higher interest rates to fight the inflation, tipped the country into recession. We ended up with high inflation, high unemployment, and a stagnating economy, a situation economists referred to as stagflation. So to fast forward back to the present, why are we talking about inflation again now, and how concerned should we be? We have all these different measures of inflation. CPI is the consumer price index. Think of a basket, right? If you had a a little shopping basket and you could stuff inside that basket— all of the kinds of things that the average consumer buys each month. So you have your transportation, you have your health care, you have some education expenses, you have housing expenses, food, entertainment. And so the items in the basket get different weights. The more important they are, the heavier the weight. And then what we do is we track the movement in the prices of all those individual things inside the basket And we figure out over time whether the entire basket is getting more expensive and by how much. But CPI is just one of the ways we track inflation. We have CPI, but we also have core CPI. That one strips out food and energy because they're considered more volatile. So sometimes we want to look at what's happening to prices without those things included. We have an index called PCE, Personal Consumption Expenditure which is similar to CPI, but with some key differences. And there's a core PCE, which takes out food and energy, but there's also a producer's price index, a PPI, and there's a GDP deflator, and there's a trimmed mean PCE, and you get the picture. And the fact that we have all of those metrics you just listed, Stephanie, suggests that none of them is perfect. This data is only just giving us a guess at what's really happening. And that's really the best you can do. 
I mean, it's literally impossible to track changes in the individual prices of every single thing each of us buys, from pin cushions to popsicles. So we do the best we can, using things like the Consumer Price Index to give us a sense of what's happening to prices overall. It's kind of part science, part art. Humans, statisticians, economists, and other experts had to invent all of these different ways to measure inflation. As our buying habits and technology change, they have to decide when and how to adjust each formula. So don't worry, Professor Kelton is not going to spring a pop quiz on us later. But this is something we need to understand on some level to get at what's happening now in our economy. What we've seen during this COVID era is that we've had massive supply side shocks. That's Randall Ray, a professor of economics at Bard College and senior scholar at the Levy Economics Institute. We've had workers who could not go to work because of unsafe working conditions, supply chains that have been interrupted, ship getting caught in the canal, and um, ships now in long lines waiting to be unloaded. And so it's not surprising that you're going to see some prices rising. Supply chain disruption of just one thing, like a computer chip, can affect all kinds of industries we don't even realize rely on those chips. Everything from Teslas to toaster ovens. That drives up the price of many different kinds of products. Consumers pay more or in some cases can't get the products they need. Those prices increase our cost of living and lower consumer confidence. And while that does sound bad, and it is bad, some expect it will be temporary, just like when we ran out of toilet paper at the beginning of the pandemic. A lot of the price increases could similarly be temporary. Economists say there's a difference between transitory and real inflation. But how do we know the difference? So this is the big debate in economics today. Is inflation transitory or is it going to hang around a bit longer? It's like When the meteorologist tells you there's a shower coming, you want to know if it's a passing shower and you can just hang out inside for 30 minutes and then walk the dog? Or is it going to rain all day long and you need to make plans to get an umbrella? The transitory question is about whether you have to change your plans in some sense or whether you have to change your behavior. So what do we need to look at to know if this is transitory or not? Well, what the Fed is looking at, and that's really where this word transitory comes from, it was sort of the Federal Reserve's way of communicating with financial markets and with others about what it was thinking about this inflation that we're experiencing. So calling it transitory was kind of the Fed's way of saying, we might not have to take action to do something about the inflation. It's sort of like that passing shower. If you think the problems are going to work themselves out on their own, without you having to raise interest rates to try to fight off higher inflation, then the inflation is transitory. But if you think that you're going to have to do something proactively to deal with the inflationary pressures, then that's really the Fed's way of saying, we don't think it's transitory. And is that because of the pandemic that's been this you know cataclysmic, unique event that eventually we hope will subside and we'll be able to return to something vaguely resembling normal? Yeah, so much of what we've been experiencing is in one way or another tied to the pandemic. And that's why so many people expected that as we got the virus under control and as, you know, production started to normalize, workers went back into the workplace because kids went back to school and businesses were opening up again, 
that this would sort of bring back a situation where inflation would come down on its own. But there is also some reason to think this might not be that passing storm, that there is some real seismic changes in the economy and the job market that could mean this is longer term inflation. Yeah, that's what a lot of us are starting to ask now, even to use the word transitory, you know, what might be transitory with one port or with one factory somewhere in Southeast Asia. It's kind of like this game whack-a-mole where, you know, something pops up in one part of the world and creates some problems in the supply chain. Remember, a supply chain, if you think of a chain, it has many links. And if there's a break at any point in the chain, it disrupts the entire process. So as these things rear their heads in different parts of the world at different times, you know, they work themselves out, that one event can become transitory. But if there's another one popping up and another one popping up, then it starts to feel like the inflation is sort of omnipresent. I'm picturing a lot of economists wielding large mallets. And that's the real challenge now is to figure out whether you need to swing the mallet. And if you do, what's the right target? The best policy right now then could be to do nothing so that we don't send the economy on a roller coaster ride. But we have no idea if things are going to return to normal or not. Let's talk about how we got here. Congress gave this role to the Fed with some goals, full employment and price stability. How the Fed carries out monetary policy is up to the Fed. For decades, the main tool has been the overnight interest rate. The Fed relies on the overnight interest rate to try to hit its inflation and employment goals, but it is free to try other things. So now let's get back to the question of could we see the same kind of rampant inflation we saw in the 1970s today? Inflation has been at the rate of, what, 5.8% a year, no better than it was the year before. Anybody who will believe that it will get better will believe anything. That's John Kenneth Galbraith. He was a Harvard economist and a senior advisor to JFK. He wrote a book about how America's unchecked consumer culture could increase the perils of both inflation and recession. This is him speaking in 1971. Why will it get worse, <clears throat> and, uh, despite all the standard uh, remedies that are being applied? We are faced, unfortunately, with a condition, a condition of power in both labor markets and in the markets served by the large corporations. And as long as that continues, we will either have inflation or unemployment or a combination of the two. He was referring to what's called the wage-price spiral, where inflation starts to feed on itself. Workers get higher and higher wages, and then companies respond by raising prices to cover those wage increases. And so workers come back and ask for another wage increase because prices are going higher, and it just continues to spiral. Up until the middle of the 20th century, inflation was always substantially a problem of wartime, of disruptions, of speculation that occurred, of profiteering. This was true in the Revolutionary War, it was true in the Civil War, it was true in the First World War. It was not true in the Second World War because the government implemented price controls and rationing, which I happen to know something about because the guy who was put in charge of it in 1942 happened to be my father. That's James Galbraith, a professor at the University of Texas and the former executive director of the Joint Economic Committee in the U.S. Congress. He's also the son of John Kenneth Galbraith. My father was, uh, let's say, 33, 34 years old when he was given responsibility for prices in what was called the Office of Price Administration and Civil and Supply, later became just OPA. They basically imposed a general freeze on every price and wage in the system that lasted to the end of the war. It was the hold the line order. 
managing these things. It's very important to keep things under control because in a severe disruption where the sole size of the economy doubled in four years, the massive increases in, in war production, then you needed to have very firm, comprehensive management of the system. And ultimately, that's what was achieved. Essentially, during the war, John Kenneth Galbraith and his colleagues had control over every price and wage in the country. But once the war was over, his agency, the Office of Price Administration, was dissolved. That was mostly because of opposition by manufacturers who argued that the U.S. was no longer in a state of emergency. After the Second World War, the economics profession got into its mind an idea which became dominant really in the 1970s. And this was the idea that inflation is always a monetary phenomenon, that it's something that's driven by the mismanagement of the central bank and that only the central bank should have responsibility for keeping it under control. What's interesting about the 70s, though, is that we had a Fed chairman named Paul Volcker, who lots of people credit for breaking the back of the high inflation that we experienced in the 1970s. And, you know, Volcker embarked on this very aggressive monetary policy approach where, you know, he just allowed the interest rate to move higher and higher and higher on the belief that this was the way to break the back of inflation. Now, there are a lot of people who actually believe that what Volcker did accentuated the inflation problem. In other words, he made the problem worse, not better. And that it was actually Jimmy Carter who came along and deregulated the natural gas industry, which made natural gas cost competitive with oil. And today we're still relying on this model, changing interest rates to regulate inflation. The monetarist theory was exactly that, that central banks should control the money supply and the rate of growth of the money supply in particular, that you could essentially set the rate of growth of the money supply at 2%, and you would end up with an inflation rate of 2%. And then it's sort of transitioned to this, well, it's not an explicit control of the money supply per se, but it's central banks adjusting interest rates. So for the last three decades, at least, the thinking has been that central banks have a very powerful tool in the form of changes in interest rates. If they want to turn inflation up, they dial the interest rate down, make credit cheaper so people will borrow and spend more money into the economy, and that will put some pressure on prices. If prices start to rise too quickly, the central bank can dial inflation down by raising interest rates. It makes it more expensive to borrow. Fewer people will borrow money and then spend it into the economy. And you can cool inflationary pressures that way. That logic seems to make sense. But is it an oversimplification? Is controlling just that one variable, the overnight rate, enough to address inflation with a wide range of underlying causes? Here's James Galbraith again. For the Federal Reserve to do it on its own with the single implement that they have, which is changing the short-term interest rate from time to time, every six weeks, more or less, well, that's a little bit like maintaining the speed of a car by just touching the gas pedal, never touching the brake, not changing the gear settings, never looking inside to see if there's anything wrong, or, or for that matter, checking to see if there's fuel in the tank. It's a strategy which at best is extremely limited. If you've ever driven a car, you recognize that you have to do some things to keep it in good running order. 
If fiddling with the thermostat is no longer cutting it, what are the other options? More on that after the break. Technology can make the world better. At UST, we're building a future where people everywhere are empowered to live better lives. It's transformation you can feel. And you don't have to do it alone. We believe in the power of technology to transform businesses and build a better world. Welcome back to the best new ideas in money. Before the break, we talked about how the Fed's one-size-fits-all solution might not be enough for the complex problems we're facing in the current COVID economy. Things like labor shortages and supply chain demands. What you're seeing is the American consumer's buying power on display here at the nation's largest gateway. A record number of container ships have been stuck waiting in the waters, unable to dock. A global shortage of truck drivers is one of the major factors in this. It's a problem, particularly in the United Kingdom at the moment, where many drivers are EU nationals. Economists have shifted back and forth between several theories on inflation over the past few decades. You had the monetarist framework, the idea that if the central bank just controls the money supply, it can control the inflation rate. That fell out of favor. We switched to this thing called the Phillips curve, which tells you that there's an inverse relationship between inflation and unemployment. In other words, the lower you allow unemployment to fall, the higher you allow inflation to move. So that if the unemployment rate started to fall too low, the Fed would get worried that this was an indicator that the labor market was getting too tight. And if the labor market got too tight, workers would end up with more bargaining power and they would get higher wages, and that would move inflation higher. So what's the prevailing theory now? If you give up on the Phillips curve, then where are you? And where economists ended up was with this theory that what you really have to do is keep the rest of us convinced that inflation will be held down. And if we change our minds collectively, and we all start to imagine higher inflation in the future that it will happen if you think it it will come sort of thing. What are our other options? Professor of Economics Randall Ray has one suggestion. Congress, using its treasury, has tools that are much more powerful to fight inflation and clearly to keep the economy growing. We've seen in the past two years that when it really needs to, Congress can allocate $5 trillion towards spending and prevent the economy from totally collapsing and driving millions more people into poverty. So can we continue to expect elected officials to share more of that responsibility? And can we start to think about new and perhaps better ways to deal with both inflation and unemployment? That would alleviate the burden on the Federal Reserve for steering our $21 trillion economic ship. What level of unemployment are we satisfied with? What level of inflation are we willing to tolerate? This should be in the hands of democratically elected representatives, not in the hands of a committee of supposed experts who are not democratically elected. So I I think that's the final piece. Not only does the Fed not have the tools to accomplish what we've asked them to accomplish, I don't think we should have asked them to accomplish them anyway, because they're not democratically elected. 
If Congress was given a greater role here, what kinds of things could it do to deal with inflation? Well, it depends on what's causing the inflation. You have to be really narrow in your policy response. It's nuanced. What Congress can do is think about inflation risk before committing to spending trillions of dollars on new programs. Congress should anticipate any inflation problems that might result from not carefully managing that spending. That's where you mitigate the inflation before it happens. The question is, can one design a package that reduces costs and cost of living and creates a more stable environment going forward? Monetary policy basically works by driving people into debt. Lowering interest rates is designed to get people and businesses to borrow more money, to take on debt, and then spend that money into the economy, which should lead to more jobs and higher growth. But that only works if people respond to lower interest rates by taking on more debt. Fiscal policy works by driving income into people's pockets. They own that money free and clear. They don't have to pay it back. Economists often look around the globe to see how other countries have successfully managed inflation. Japan in the 1970s took an entirely different approach from the one we took, and it yielded some good results. Here's Randall Ray again. Of course, Japan didn't produce any oil. They had to import all of their oil. And in retrospect, that was the right policy. If you look at what Japan did, they increased the energy efficiency of production beginning in 1974. That was their response to high oil prices. So Japan did not suffer this long period of austerity like the United States did. They came out of the oil crisis twice as energy efficient as the United States. In a way, Japan benefited from the crisis in the 70s because it was able to move through the shocks a lot faster than here in the U.S. Here's James Galbraith again. So prices went up and then they stabilized and then everybody got back down to business at the new levels. And that was a very fortunate development. While Japan has had serious financial instability at one time or another since then, this is still part of the institutional structure and culture there. Stephanie, what do you think the Fed is going to do now, though? We have to do something, but I think overreacting to the inflation that we're seeing today, you know, if the central bank were to decide that it's time to move against inflation by raising interest rates sharply, I think that could create a whole different set of problems. This is a complicated topic, and I hope we've helped distill it to the point it started to make just a little more sense. There isn't a clear solution here, since, as you've heard, there's a lot even the experts don't understand about what's happening in the economic fallout from the pandemic. Our goal on this show is to highlight how changing the way we think about money can help change the world. The current crisis is a good opportunity to think about our standard approach to managing inflation and whether or not it needs an upgrade or a reboot. Thanks for listening to The Best New Ideas in Money. You can subscribe to the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like what you heard, please leave us a review. And if you have ideas for future episodes, Drop us a line at best new ideas in money at marketwatch.com. Coming up in a few weeks, we'll be doing a special mailbag episode where we'll answer your questions. And if you send us your best new idea in money, we might talk about it on the show. Thanks to James Galbraith and L. Randall Ray. 
To learn more about inflation, head to marketwatch.com. I'm Stephanie Kelton. And I'm Jeremy Olshan. The Best New Ideas in Money is a podcast from MarketWatch, produced by Best Case Studios. Devin Maverick-Robbins and Suzanne Myers are our producers, and our associate producer is Hannah Leibowitz-Lockard. Our researcher is Alana Myers. The executive producer for Best Case Studios is Adam Pincus. For MarketWatch, Melissa Haggerty is the executive producer, and the associate producer is Katie Ferguson. This episode was mixed by Melissa Pons. The Best New Ideas in Money theme was composed by Sam Retzer. Stephanie Kelton is an economist and a professor of economics and public policy at Stony Brook University and not part of the MarketWatch newsroom. We'll be back next week with another new idea.